Welcome to episode number 73 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we have on the call Dr. Vahid Ebedot. Dr. Ebedot has an undergraduate degree and doctoral degree in electrical engineering from the University of Southampton. He has a long career in process safety, which includes uh, being the CEO of Chilworth Technology, Inc. for over 20 years. He had several roles, including director of process safety, chief technical officer, president of North America for Decker Insight, and he's currently CEO of Stonos Process Safety, based out of Princeton, New Jersey. So Dr. Ebedot, I want to say welcome to the Dust Safety Science Podcast, and we appreciate you coming on to share your knowledge with the community. Hi, Chris. And um, before I start, I'd really like to thank you for, for this opportunity, and um, I'm excited to participate with, in, in this podcast. Excellent. And from our, our discussions previously in our, our phone calls, um, Vahid is just a wealth of information in this, this space. He has over three decades in explosion prevention and protection and process safety. And my only hope is that we can just glean a little bit of that knowledge and insight from him in this podcast episode. Um, so we're going to talk about how we get started in process safety. How has the combustible dust safety landscape changed in his, over his three-decade-long career? Uh, what are the important topics that we need to tackle as community today? Then we're going to talk about the vision and goals behind his company, Stonos Process Safety. So, Vahid, maybe a, play, a great place to jump in is your academic research in electrical engineering. I know that played a, a role with process safety. How did that tie in with where your career went and what was your academic research in? As I think you said in your introduction, I did uh, a degree in electrical engineering. And uh, I did that degree at the University of Southampton in the UK. And uh, at the time, the electrical engineering department of the University of Southampton was also really a, a world-class center for research and also providing uh, advice to industry on all things static electricity. So as, as a part of my final year of my, my degree, I did a, a research into electrostatic charge generation and electrostatic hazards associated with uh, powder handling. And I immensely enjoyed that research. And that really prompted me to, um, after graduating, um, uh, to basically carry on uh, with a PhD in, in electrostatic hazards. And I was fortunate enough to, in fact, have a project that was sponsored by a number of multinational companies at the time who were in fact interested and had a stake in knowing more about dust, fires, and explosions that could be caused by electrostatic discharges. So I had a big grant and I had a big research facility that comprised of literally a couple of uh, close to 100 uh, uh, cubic meter silos. And I was uh, able to spend just, just over three years really doing a, a whole bunch of research into how powders uh, of different natures, ranging from foodstuff to plastics and anything in between, could become electrostatically charged up. And whether or not uh, the charges were high enough to create electrostatic discharges with sufficient energy to ignite the dust cloud. And that really was, if you like, my, my entry into process safety. So I started from college, 
and uh, I've been really fortunate to um, practice uh, all my career what has been um, my my passion from 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 day one so that that really was how I started into started with process safety and it sounds like a, a really interesting start most people do process safety first and then maybe at some point in their career come into combustible dust uh, but you really were starting in combustible dust hazards at the very beginning just so the audience has a timeline there when would have you have started without maybe giving away too much i guess but when would you have done your your doctoral degree so i um, did my first degree uh, graduated um bachelor of science in 1985 and immediately went on to do my um, phd and i completed my my thesis in 1989 but as i was in fact uh, writing up my thesis i started um working for at the time a, a process safety company that had been set up in 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 the uk by my in fact phd supervisors so as i was writing up my thesis i started moonlighting at that company and that really is how i got into this field basically a couple of months later full time and here i am so Academically, I finished my PhD in 1989, and from that moment on, I have been practicing in, in this field. Uh, initially, uh, I worked out of the UK, did quite a number of projects, um, process safety-related projects for various companies from various industries, from foodstuff to wood, pulp, paper pharmaceuticals, chemicals. And then um, I, in fact, came from the UK to, to the US uh, early in 1992 to set up a branch of, of, of our, our operations here. And um, I've been doing this in the US, in fact, or out of um, US for, for, the, you know, for the past 28 years or so. Wow. And I always like to jump in to... Because I'm curious on the research side, always what the driver is. So, were there any key drivers um, in the the mid late '80s that were causing this type of research to be undertaken, or was there a key incident, or how did that come about that this was a topic of importance? Yes, there had been some incidents um, in, in in a couple of different industries and um, industry associations, and from grain and feed to, in fact chemical and plastics, uh, had um, put together grants, in fact, to, to do research to understand more on how and why and um, solutions to, to, to those um, issues. So, yeah, it had, I guess, come out of um, necessity, so to speak. So at the time, in 1980s, um, there really was a quite a bit of research going on in Germany, in Switzerland, in the UK. For, for, from my perspective, um, very interesting and exciting times they, they were. And you mentioned that you transferred eventually to the United States with that company. Was there, was there a big difference in combustible dust awareness or the approaches that were used 
between when you were working in the UK and the United States? Just trying to get an understanding of what that process looked like. Well, again, um, one sh- should talk in general terms. And, um, and generally speaking, there appeared to be at the time a, a higher level of awareness um, in, in, in Europe than in, in the U.S., Obviously, there are always exceptions, but generally speaking, um, when we came from the UK to the US um, in early 1990s, um, we in fact felt that hunger, so to speak, here for for that service, for that that knowledge. There, there really weren't many labs out there at the time that were offering a full range of dust explosion testing, and. Um, uh, also, uh, companies out there that provided um, advice to industry, um, practical uh, advice um, to industry were very few. So there, there definitely was a gap uh, at the time in the early 1990s that we could feel. And it, it was really showing itself by, for example, the number of people who were attending our uh, public uh, workshops that we were giving on various topics of process safety. And um, of course, um, um, by early 2000s, we had uh, a number of uh, major dust explosions um, in the US. Um, we know about the two or three big, um, big dust explosions that occurred in 2003, for example. And that really brought message home. And of course, uh, right after that, um, OSHA came up with the uh, National Emphasis Program on Combustible Dust. And of course, um, later on, um, uh, more more recently, we we saw NFPA 652 uh, uh, grabbing attention. And that has really been all, again, that is the the change I have of seen personally myself in in the past thirty years or so. Yeah, so I'm going to do kind of a bit of a summary there. So you mentioned you did your graduate degree in the late '80s um, in the UK out of Southampton. Um, you worked in that area for a number of years, and then in the early uh, '90s you moved through to the US. And it's interesting you say you were doing these public workshops, um, and that there was a lot of interest there because that's almost. I mean, that's what this podcast is, right? It's a it's a public spreading of information. And we found the same thing. And we're talking two, almost two decades later, there really is a hunger. That was the word you used. I really like that. There's a there's a hunger or thirst for knowledge um, that is missing. And it's interesting here that it was, it was also missing in, you know, in the early 90s. And then we had in the the early and mid-2000s, a lot of large-scale incidents. Chemical Safety Board came through with their combustible hazard report. Uh, then we had Imperial Sugar around the same time that OSHA released this national emphasis program and then moving forward. So is there any other kind of, I mean, those are the, the major changes to the landscape in terms of the, the really big milestone or markers, I guess you'd call them. Is there any other ways that the landscape has changed for combustible safety in this, this three decades of working in this area that you've noticed? Yes. I mean, when you go back, for example, to early 1990s, um, we had um, some of the major chemical and pharmaceutical, for example, companies who who were doing or trying to do all the right things. 
there was some awareness in those corporations, in, in those industries, and um, they were asking for what we now call dust hazard analysis uh, or fire and explosion hazard assessments. They were asking for testing of their um, materials, powders, solids, liquids. Um, they were asking for training of their operators and technical and management staff. Uh, what has changed really is um, this um, awareness now has gone into many other industries and companies and down to, in fact, these days to mom and pop companies. Um, whereas before, uh, major corporations were interested in these types of um, uh, services, uh, but now if, if there is any change in the landscape, is that it's really moving down to much smaller um, companies. Uh, in fact, last week I had uh, a call from a couple of individuals who, whose business is receiving some boxes of material, some boxes of a herb, and simply opening those boxes and pouring those into a tank that contains water. That is the extent of their business. And they are asking, they were asking for a DHA and they were asking for the testing of their powder. So that is the, the change in the landscape. And going from a multinational corporation at one time, the majority of requests were coming from those types of companies and industries to now coming from a two-man single powder, single process type company. What do you think some of the drivers of that change have been? More recently in the past five, six years, really, the driver has been in NFBA 652. And the fact that now OSHA and local state uh, fire departments are becoming more and more familiar with, with this and are in fact asking companies in their regions to to show that they've done what is needed to ensure safety of dust, safety from dust fires and explosions, safety of their people, safety of their business, and in fact, safety of the community. So to me, that is probably the driver. And of course, um, uh, with the social media as they are today, if there are incidents, um, even in far, far places, we get to hear about them very quickly, very readily. And of course, that is um, also a driver. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense here. There's that globalization aspect, but also, I mean, we see it in everything. We see it with the recent coronavirus and everything else that gets you know put out into the world now. It, it's, it's around the world in, in hours. So if you have a large scale incident, then it could be around the world in hours. It's certainly going to be not take long to get around your small town in the U.S. if that's uh, where you're working out of. So looking at this, we have some key drivers. We have NFPA 652. We have OSHA um, and their uh, inspection, their national emphasis program on combustible dust. Um, we have groups like the Chemical Safety Board um, and others that are doing a lot of education and awareness and also local authorities um, also being more aware and driving for these smaller companies to be involved as well. 
what are some of the, the important topics that we need to tackle to improve fire and explosion safety and dust handling industries from your perspective? The most important thing is still raising awareness, raising awareness and training um, that the, the fire, dust, fire and explosion hazards are there, they're real. Um, and when they do occur, they can cause serious injuries, business losses, and sometimes um, harm to the community. So um, awareness is really quite, in my mind even today, is, is quite important and, and training. Also, uh, I think it's important to convey the message to the industry that um, really very often the hardest part is to diagnose the problem. Uh, but after that, if, if, if they are in good hands with the right type of people who, who are providing these um, services, the solutions ought not be um, very expensive and, and cumbersome. Um, very often, like I said, the difficult part is to properly and correctly diagnose the problem convey the message that very often the solutions could be quite practical and uh, most of the time uh, affordable. Because, uh, I mean, uh, we all come across companies that are really even hesitant learning about their potential hazards because they're afraid that if, if they do that, then they end up spending money that probably they cannot afford or they don't have. Or they may be, you know, shut down for extended periods of time and so on. So um, awareness, training, and also the fact that um, very often there are practical ways of ensuring safety that ought not uh, break the bank, so to speak. Yeah, can you give, I think that's an important point, this fear of it being too expensive um, because it's in direct competition with getting more awareness to smaller facilities. <laughs> um, you can see how the two are inversely inverse to each other. You get more aware of small facilities, while some may not want to hear the information you're providing because they um, you know, may want to shut their eyes or close their ears. Um, so from have you do you have any tips or strategies from this awareness part on on removing this fear of it costing too much? What has kind of worked in your your experience? Well um for example, um, doing a dust hazard analysis does not necessarily mean that you will end up with um, explosion relief bands or suppression systems on, on everything, including the company CAT, um, uh, or having rated electrical equipment uh, everywhere. These are sometimes quite expensive um, options. So um, in my opinion, from my three decades of experience, uh, if, if you're able to correctly uh, identify the ignition sources, for example, that might exist in a facility during normal or abnormal operating conditions, uh, if we can, in fact, also determine the ease of ignition of, of the dust clouds, perhaps, that might be present by those ignition sources that have been identified, we then very often find that there are ways, in fact, to control or eliminate those ignition sources. 
And if we can do that, or put uh, keep the fuel away from those ignition sources, and in fact, quite reliably ensure safety by avoidance of, of the fuel and the ignition sources. We don't necessarily always need to go for, for explosion protection. That is just an example. And again, that comes from the knowledge, expertise, and experience uh, that basically can be applied to diagnose the, the issues correctly and as a result, being able to uh, come up with um, um, practical approaches, again, for ensuring safety. Do you see these kind of approaches missed when you have someone who's not as knowledgeable doing, say, a DHA or even a hazard assessment at a facility? Are they more likely to mandate that you need a, a more expensive approach or uh, maybe even overprotect? Do you see some kind of correlation there? Yes, um, there, there is correlation there. Uh, we see them. We see them. Um, Maybe not causation, but well, but uh, we're, yeah. <laughs> um, of, of course, we see them. And um, there is um, obviously uh, an issue with the expertise and experiences of some of the people who actually do the work or do the uh, DHAs. But there is also. Um, I think uh, gaps when it comes to to the codes and the standards out there. And I do understand that, for example, quite rightly, NFPA 652 gives us the option of doing a, a performance-based design. So to do a risk assessment and um, come up with um, alternative um, approaches for ensuring safety that is probably different than the prescriptive approach that is, you know, is in NFPA 652. But again, um, when we are doing that uh, performance-based approach or risk assessment, how much information do we really have? How much expertise do we have to say, look, the only ignition source in this particular operation is, let's say for the sake of argument, a mechanical spark. Or, or mechanical friction causing heat. And if we have a, 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 a pro, um, proper preventive maintenance program in place, we can eliminate that. Or in fact, if we have proper testing done and we see what the maximum temperatures are, we can probably determine that uh, if, even if there is mechanical failure, uh, the heat and the temperature that is um, then generated won't be able to ignite the powder under those conditions. So again, it comes to expertise and experience and the availability of data. Yeah, I think that's a great example. And I did want to touch on, because I know just a couple of years ago, um, you and your partner started uh, Stonos Process Safety and you're based out of Princeton. Can you give us some information on why you started that company and, and what your team does there? Yes, as you mentioned, myself and my my partner, and in fact, my team now, uh, each one of us have had more than three decades of um, direct experience in, in process safety. We've been doing this um, for a very long time. And in fact, um, when we... Um, decided to Stonehouse process safety. Basically, we were coming out of our comfort zones 
and um, really our our focus is uh, really on, on on this simple premise that um, we want to put our clients' needs first. Again, our experience um, shows us that um, when you are putting the clients' needs first, being a, a, a partner with them and working with them to, to basically ensure safety of their operations and processes as if they were your own. There is a need for that and there is an appreciation for that. So um, at Stonehouse, really, we have um, employed a, a world-class team of knowledgeable and experienced process safety consultants. Um, and we are providing um, impartial advice really on all matters process safety. We have also uh, established um, a testing uh, laboratory for measuring combustibility, explosibility, uh, flammability, and self-heating or thermal instability, and electrostatic properties of dusts and powders and um, liquids and gases. We also have um, basically um, uh, been offering training in, in all these important topics of process safety. And uh, the training that is provided, the training that is on offer is, is delivered by these people who have been practicing process safety for over 30 years. And in fact, we take that knowledge and experience to the, to the classroom, so to speak, to that training room. So um, that really is, is, is been the motivation, being in touch with, with our clients and being basically partners with them, being in it together, so to speak. Yeah, I like that. I like that you take as a kind of critical element of what you do, this training component. And it sounds like something you've been doing your, your entire career. I mean, you mentioned that in the 90, like 1992, that's what you were doing with these public workshops. And then as you kind of continue down your career role, and now with Stonehouse Process Safety, it's the same sort of thing where there's this underlying fabric of increasing awareness and doing, and I think it's more than just training. I think it's company-specific training. It's not just, here's your, you know, here's your 10 slides on combustible dust to start with the Pentagon, you end with the DHA. Um, it's how does that apply to a, a lumber mill or how does that apply to a pharmaceutical plant or how does that apply to a cereal manufacturer? And that's the that's some of the added value. I think that's missing a bit in our space. And I, I know that that's stuff that you provide with um, Stonehouse Process Safety and the work that you do. And in particular, I saw, and this, we, we promote a lot of stuff across social media. And I'll confess, I don't actually see it all come through my desk. The team will promote a lot of it. So one thing that came through that I saw that we promoted was um, a free process safety consultation at the International Powder Show. And when I clicked on it, um, it was from Stonos Process Safety. And the, the offer there was to you know stop by the booth and see uh, see yourself and your team and get some of that training one-on-one, some of that site-specific training and, and discussion there. Can you talk about what that what that is? And we'll include a link in the show notes um, to it as well. But at the International Powder Show is the last month of April. This episode will come out about four weeks before that. So if you're you're listening to this episode and attending the powder show, I'd encourage you to stop by Stonehouse booth there. But what what is this this free process safety consultation that uh, that you're talking about at the show? Um, well, it is as it 
sounds. Um, we really are encouraging people to come to our booth and take advantage of just us being there and having a conversation, really on all matters, process safety. We appreciate very often that people have um, some burning questions and, um, you know, they should, again, we are providing this um, free service, just come and ask your questions. And uh, no question is is too small. And we really, uh, from my experience, um, if you encourage people to come and, and, and just have a conversation, that trust will be built and we then take it from there. We are, um, I often say we are not, no disrespect, but we are not like, let's say, attorneys. We, you know, conversations with us are just um, free of charge. So um, come to us, ask um, your process safety uh, question. Let's have a conversation and um, we'll be more than happy to share our knowledge and experiences and um, to the extent that we can answer answer your your questions really without any restrictions uh, at all yeah i would encourage people to to partake in that because i think just like you said it's important um i know there's a lot of questions we get them all the time we talked about this at the the dust safety conference we're getting so many questions now a week that we we actually need to put a process in place to manage the answering of of them so i know people have questions and you can't really do it justice Digitally, it's 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 nicer to have that conversation in person, which is why I would encourage people to to definitely check out the booth at the show when they're attending. If I am a listener, what kind of questions should I stop by and get answered? Um, are there ones that you typically hear people asking that you you just think they should come ask at the at the uh, at the show in order to get answered? Well, like I said, it, it, uh, uh, no question is uh, would be too small or too 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 big. Um, and really anything on process safety, it could be things like, um, I don't know, how do I go about testing my dust? Which sample, uh, where do I take a, a dust sample from to, um, uh, you know, what is involved in a dust hazard analysis or um, what type of bulk bag or super sack should I be using for, for my powder if the powder has... I don't know, a minimum ignition energy of, of five. Um, anything process safety. But um, like I said, it, uh, no question will be, would be too small or too big. Yeah, I think, uh, like I said, I'll be at the show. Um, I know uh, Dr. Abidad and myself will be actually on a, I'll be moderating a panel that he'll be on about dust hazard analysis. So I encourage people to check that out. Um, and if you have any questions about that, I definitely would stop by the booth and I'll, I'll probably be, uh, be lurking around there a couple of times throughout the show as well. So hopefully you catch us both at the same time. Very good. And in fact, I, I should mention, Chris, that we recently did a survey of, of, of the people on, on our database, um, a web-based survey on really their understanding of um, NFPA 652 uh, and the requirements of NFPA 652. And um, we actually had a uh, good response. I think some 150 people responded to the survey. And um, it's interesting that um, uh, there's still about, I don't know, 30% or so, 25 to 30% of of, uh, people out there who really don't have um, perhaps a, 
complete enough understanding of um, NFPA 652 and, and its requirements. And um, to me, 25, 30% is still uh, a very appreciable number. And um, so there are still uncertainties out there. There are still um, miscommunications out there. And um, it is really up to us to um, increase the awareness. And um, we are hoping that, um, you know, this um, free consultation at the Chicago Powder Show um, would, would help bridge that gap, make that gap smaller. Yeah, we'd, we would agree. And hopefully this episode of the podcast and others like it will help uh, help get that number smaller as well. And I think the number is probably higher. You, the the people that responded are probably more likely to to know about NFPA 652 than the people who didn't respond. <laughs> so you may, you may even have more. <laughs> it's quite possible, yes. And in fact, uh, uh, you are in a way right because uh, the people on our database have been receiving our monthly newsletter that um, uh, contains very often one or two articles, short articles on dust explosions and anything process safety. So in a way, they have been receiving those um, those material. But even then, like I said, some 25 to 30% are still not quite where they ought to be when it comes to their understanding of NFPA 652 requirements. Well, hopefully we can close that gap together as we, we move forward um, with things like this podcast and with the work that you're doing as well. You've been doing a fantastic job, Chris, especially more recently with your digital dust conference, which really was quite amazing. And um, to your credit, you did a fantastic job. I appreciate that. And um, we had Vahid present there uh, along with over 45 other people, and that's all within the Dust Safety Academy as well. So if you're you're interested in that, you can go to www.ddsc2020.com, and we'll have the – right now, that's probably a page to um, get information about the conference, but we'll have uh, information there how you can get more involved later as well. And we may have uh, – even in the future, may have Dr. Evadot come back and, and speak and train more with the community there, but we, we can figure that out as time goes on. Um, but I think that's it for, for this episode today. Bahid. Um, we do have links to Stonehouse Process Safety's website. I mean, go there and get information about the, the team um, and their work. You can also likely join that uh, newsletter that uh, Bahid was talking about there as well. Um, we have a link to the International Powder Show in Chicago. Um, more information on this free process safety consultation. Get that all at dustsafetyscience.com slash 73. We'll have a way to uh, contact uh, Bahid there as well. And, and without... Uh, you know, without holding up any longer, Dr. Ebed, I just want to say thank you again for coming on the podcast and sharing your, your wealth of experience with the community. Again, thank you for the opportunity, Chris, and to your listeners. Um, if you have really any question related to anything, process safety, dust explosions, self-heating, gas and vapor flammability, static electricity, please uh, don't hesitate to contact us. Just telephone conversation with us um, is really free of charge, I should say, regardless of frequency or duration. So please um, feel free to contact us uh, with, with your questions. Very often we learn just as much as we give. 
So we are, we enjoy those conversations. And again, um, please feel free to contact us. And we'll, yeah, we'll again put uh, the contact information in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 73 for that. So I say thanks again, Vahid, and I look forward to the next chance to get together. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Dr. Vahid Ebedot, and we were talking about his experience over the last three decades in dust explosion prevention and protection. We talked about some of the, the big trends that he's seen um, from starting his career as an academic, as a researcher, um, and doing his PhD in electrostatics of uh, powder handling, um, and moving into combustible dust safety and process safety more broadly. We talked about some of these trends that he, he's seen over his career, which is one, a movement from large companies being aware and really looking to do things down to smaller companies. And now we see, you know, even small companies that are only handling one powder or have one processing line or, you know, small wood shops uh, that only have a, a couple employees or maybe only one employee are starting to be more aware of the hazard. Um, and I actually think this is of, of critical importance. And I didn't mention it in the episode because I didn't think about it, but I put a star here a little bit later. Different countries are in different stages of their development here. And we look at other countries, they may be in the case where we see maybe in Brazil, where a lot of large multinationals are aware of combustible hazards, but we haven't had that awareness for the small companies yet. It's important because the small companies make up a vast percentage of the number of explosion incidents, injuries, and fatalities that are happening. So we need to get into the awareness into those companies. So if you look at each country, they're at a different stage in their awareness level. And knowing how that's played out in the US, I think is going to be a critical driver for us to figuring that out later um, as well. So Dr. Ebedot did mention some drivers for this. Um, NFPA 652 is a more recent one. The U.S. Chemical Safety Board's work, um, local authorities becoming more aware. Then, you know, more large-scale community issues like globalization and social media and the role that plays in, in amplifying messages as well. That's a, you know, a key driver. And we also talked about some challenges in process safety. Awareness and training is still a challenge. I'd add to that site-specific training. It's not enough just to know um, the Explosion Pentagon, how that applies in a broad sense, but you need to be able to look at that and say, how does that apply in my facility? How does hazard prevention and protection apply to my facility? And you mentioned some really good ones. Fear of cost is a big driver. I would say fear of litigation, if you know something, is also a big driver. We see that a lot. People don't want to know what could be wrong because then they're worried about what their liability is. And the experience of process safety consultants is another big area. This ties in with qualified person and dust hazard analysis. Who has and what is the prerequisite amount of knowledge to be able to to make the right calls in these areas? And that's something that's still pretty fuzzy today. We don't know what the answer is, but it's definitely an open challenge. Um, we also talked about where Vahid sees Stono's process safety um, working in these areas in terms of dust hazard analysis, in terms of testing, in terms of training and education that he's been doing his entire career. Um, we closed out with the discussion of what's coming up at the International Powder Show at Chicago, which will be just, I think, about four weeks after this episode comes out. So if you are a listener and you do have these kind of questions that uh, he mentioned, stop by his booth there and you get them answered. And as we mentioned in the show, we will have his contact information on one of the contact information of his team in the show notes at uh, dustsafetyscience.com slash 73. So other than that, I want to say thank you as always for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. I'm really looking forward to continuing to bring you um, information, knowledge, experience, backgrounds and ideas from experts around the world on combustible dust safety help increasing the training and awareness for combustible dust hazards across the globe as well. 